Amen. As you see, we come then to the preaching of God's Word. The preaching of God's Word is found once more in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. We consider this evening in our series on the Lord's self-proclamation, the Lord's long-suffering kindness. And we gather this thought from this passage. So once more hear these words from verse 5 and we'll read through verse 7 for some context once more. Exodus 34 reading verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. It's particularly there at verse 6 that we wish to focus when it is that God in proclaiming His name says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. It's this particular aspect of His goodness that we give our attention to now this evening, remembering that this proclamation of His name is, as He said earlier in Exodus 33, the proclamation of His goodness. And so He's making known Himself, not in all that He is, but highlighting for us that which is most beautiful for us, especially as we are but creatures, and far worse than that, those who have sinned, to have this confirming proclamation from none less than God Himself that He is such as He here proclaims Himself to be is an extraordinary blessing indeed. It is excellent that God made Himself known. And it is all the more excellent that in making Himself known, He has highlighted and magnified His goodness. Well, it's this word long-suffering that we focus on now. And this one word is formed of two Hebrew words in the text. And so we have, in our own English, a compound word, long-suffering. But in the Hebrew, it's actually two distinct words. And the first of these is the word long, sometimes translated slow in certain contexts. When it is slow, the word is always combined with the word of anger or wrath. And so when you find this word slow... You'll find it in such places as, for instance, Nehemiah 9.17, slow to anger. And this is preeminently of God, but it is also spoken of as a grace that God's people receive and exercise so that a wise man is slow to anger. And you'll remember, of course, that here we see God is said to be long-suffering But in 1 Corinthians 13, when speaking of charity or love, you remember it says that charity suffereth long and is kind. 
And so, though, of course, preeminently this is with reference to God, we see that by His grace He plants His likeness in His people, that we likewise with all of these others, His mercy and grace, His long-suffering and so on, would be more and more realized in us. It is once translated with the word long on, in a different context when it speaks of a great eagle with great wings, long-winged. And so the word itself has to do with something that is long. And when the idea of slow, it means the uh, experience of it is long. So some of you have been on long trips before and when you're doing that, you can feel as if it's a slow trip because of how long it is. And this is the notion of this word. It has both of those ideas combined. The other word is here translated long-suffering. That makes up that is the word for anger. But literally, it refers to nostrils. It may be a bit surprising. How does this work? Overwhelmingly in our Bible, as, in, as well as in other um, languages, it is translated with the word anger or wrath. And that's because, as many of you will know, Hebrew is often very concrete. And when you think of a person who is uh, angry, you think of their nostrils flaring and the rate of their respiration increases. And so it's a very concrete way to speak of that which takes place when one is angry. And this is why the Scriptures regularly are translated as angry. And so when you put these together, as our English does, you have a very good translation with long-suffering. Slow to anger is the idea. And so children, you can think of it this way perhaps. If you had um, a powder keg, uh, a large bucket with gunpowder in it, You know what happens if even a spark hits it. It explodes. It erupts. But if you have a long fuse, you can extend it for hundreds of feet perhaps. And though you light the one end, it takes a long time until that fuse uh, that's lit uh, comes in contact with the gunpowder and it erupts. And there's many opportunities along that time for that spark to be put out. This is a good view of what is being expressed here, that the Lord is not quick, as it were, to explode in His fury, but He extends in His sovereign goodness this deference of His wrath for many good reasons, as we'll see preeminently what we see here when God is proclaiming this, and surely you can see that in context, is that the Lord is highlighting that He is one who, though holy and most righteous, is one who is slow to anger against sinners. And if we were to have read the whole of the book of Exodus to this point, you will have seen that illustrated countless times. How many times did God put up, as we would say it, with His complaining people? If you read through the book of Judges, you'll see almost... um, a regular cycle of the Lord's people turning and the Lord in long-suffering bearing with and the Lord in long-suffering raising up judges and reproving and even in His long-suffering coming to discipline that they would repent. And brethren, we need 
not even look at the Bible because if we were to gauge our own lives, the fact that you and I are still breathing, the fact that you and I have ears that are hearing now His Word is a testimony and tribute to this fact that God is slow to anger with reference to sinners. Because if He were not, each one of us would be instantaneously, overwhelmingly, and everlastingly overthrown in His wrath. Well, We wish to look at this in two points before applying the same. Firstly, looking at the meaning of His long-suffering kindness. And secondly, uh, looking at the occasions for His long-suffering kindness, which will help us better to apply the same. We trust by the Lord's blessing to our own encouragement. Well, firstly then, the meaning of the Lord's long-suffering kindness. We've noted already the essence of this, but just to clarify, God often does not execute judgment immediately against sin. In fact, so often is that the case that we could almost set that up as the rule. If you think for a moment of the Scriptures, there are instances where there is an immediate judgment. But you can practically count on one hand how many of those exist in the Bible. This isn't to limit God, and it's not to overstate a point. It's only to display that the very revelation and the history of God displays this so powerfully. So you think, as you search your mind and you go through the record of Scriptures, how many times is there instantaneous judgment for the act of sin? You can think of Nadab and Abihu when they offered up what was unwarranted in worship and instantaneously judged. The fire of the Lord consumed them. But brethren, let's remember how many times has God's worship been profaned and there has not been that kind of judgment. This is not to harden us, as we'll see. It's not to make us presumptuous. It is to make us astounded that there is not the consuming of sinners in the moment of the profaning of His worship. You think of Uzzah as the Ark of the Covenant is being brought up by David without the due attention to what God had prescribed in His Word. Instead of being carried on the uh, poles, it was placed on an ox cart. And doubtlessly, Uzzah, out of a good intention, when the oxen stumbled and the ark was about to fall over, he stretched forth his hand and he was put to death. So that God was displaying that He is indeed true to His Word and a holy God and is not to be profaned. You think perhaps of Ananias and Sapphira as they brought what they contended was the whole gain of the sale of their land and they indeed lied not merely to man, as Peter points out, but rather to God and lying to the Holy Ghost. And they were both, upon their lie, set down by judgment. But brethren, you can search perhaps and discover a few other instances, but the fact is that the number of those instantaneous judgments are so few that as you start to think How many times has God been long-suffering towards sinners? You can't begin to complete the list. You can't actually start to fathom 
how many overwhelmingly instances there are in the Scriptures, set aside everything outside of the Scriptures record, how many times God does not execute the fierceness of His wrath against sin for some of the most egregious of sins. Think for a moment of the execution of judgment even with Adam and Eve. There is judgment. Surely there is. But Adam and Eve do not receive the fullness of the expression of God's wrath because they live and move and breathe still. As you read through Genesis 3 and onward, you see that they live for hundreds of years. They have children. It's not that God did not execute a form of His judgment. They did uh, receive the penalty of physical death as it began within them and ultimately would take them. And spiritual death was doubtlessly theirs. But that fullest form of the fury of God's wrath was deferred. And you could go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if ever there's a spectacle that displays the reality of God's wrath, surely it's that. And yet, for how long did God bear with those abominable sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? You think of the language with reference to God's people, that the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. God was taking, as it were, inventory. And such was His kindness that He had not consumed them in His wrath. Brethren, we could go on and on again and again and recount instance after instance after instance where God did not execute the fierceness of His wrath against sin at the moment. What did He do instead? He chose in His sovereign goodness to be long-suffering to them. You can even think of Uzzah, Ananias and Sapphira, You can think of Nadab and Abihu. Were not the seeds of those sins already at work in them? Were they not already entertaining certain things about it, and yet God did not judge them at that moment? And so even in those things where we think there's instantaneous judgment, yet we have to admit that there was even in their lives an experience, a deferral. Because were they not conceived in iniquity and sin? Did they not have the stain and the crying out of their inherent wickedness to God saying, I am a sinner from my womb. I've gone astray. And so it is that God does not execute judgment. This stands out when you think of how sin is an infinite affront to God. You can't measure it. There's no scale that accurately conveys how wicked And how big of an affront against God every sin is. This is no denial of the different degrees of heinousness of sin. For God Himself is the one who acknowledges that some sins are more abhorrent in their very nature by various circumstances than others. As He says to the prophet, yet will I show you worse sins, greater sins than these. That's God's Word. But it does remind us that what you and I acknowledge to be less heinous is yet still an infinite affront to God. Think of it. God is perfectly good. Whatever has He done that's evil? Whatever has He withheld that He had not the right to withhold? Whatever has He given that any of us ever deserved? 
Any goodness we've received has only been of His mercy as we've considered. And in response to that, mankind has raised up his fist with a brazen audacity to say, not you, but rather I will be God. Your word is not going to govern me. My will is going to govern me. Your church is not going to be my assembly, my people, my choosing, all of these things against God. And think then sin demands justice from a holy God. Understand this. It is not optional with God. His perfect justice demands that every sin be punished. There's nothing in God that would permit Him to pass by an iniquity, a sin or transgression, without it being punished. And we say, well, how is it then that people are forgiven? Remember the cross. It is the real punishing of His Son for all the iniquities He forgives. And so that God is perfectly just demands that sins be punished. His perfect righteousness demands this. And every time that you and I sin, it is as it were shouting out to God, I deserve your wrath. Every sin. His long-suffering doubtlessly displays His kindness. Think of how this is a glorious perfection as we think on its meaning. This is shown by how extremely vile and horrid all sin is. How can we rightly consider and conceive of the nature of sin? Is it not the case that you and I have sins in our lives that we don't bat an eye at? There are sins in our lives where we say, well, that needs some help and work. And what's happened is, we have become ourselves, even as believers, callous toward our sins. Think for a moment how infinitely beautiful and holy and good God is. And yet sin is the saying to God, not you, I'm better. You think for a moment how every sin is against Him without cause. No one will ever Not now, not in the past, not on the last day. Be able to say, well, I did this because you, and fill in the blank. None of that will stand. If you want a little glimpse of how infinitely vile sin is, think of the punishment that is the fitting reward for sin. Everlasting death. Now our culture has no place for these considerations, but the Bible, our guide, clearly affirms that their torment, their agony, their worm dies not. The flames are everlasting. And the horror for the unbeliever on the last day is that though they are resurrected, it's not in glory. It will be unto the most abhorrent realization that now body and soul ever joined together for all everlasting time shall be the object of of unrelenting just punishment for their sins. That's it. Hell is the just punishment for sin. We could go further and you could say, well, it must not be that big of a deal because after all, my sins are forgiven. And yet that's to overlook. How was it accomplished that our sins were forgiven? 
but by the eternal Son of God, taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, and as the God-man enduring the fullness of the wrath of God. We see only a glimpse of it upon the cross as it is expressed in His outward pain and agony. And we hear something of its depths, unfathomable depths, when He cries out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And there is a picture of how abhorrent sin is that the only remedy that God lighted upon was the sending of His Son, the object of His everlasting, His eternal love. This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. And He sends His Son in order to bear His wrath because sin is so wicked that none could do it other than the eternal Son of God incarnate and thus quench His justice and satisfy divine wrath in doing so. We can see how this is a glorious perfection if we go further by seeing it's not just in light of how extremely vile and horrid all sin is. It is in light of how extremely vile and horrid all sinners are. There is a way in which we may say that we are to hate the sin and love the sinner. But we have to be very clear in what we mean and what we don't mean. The unfortunate part of our day is that that phrase has been wrongly emphasized. And the current evangelical church has no way of dealing with Psalm 5, Psalm 8, and the fact of hell. Because in Psalm 5 and Psalm 8, God says He hates the wicked. Not wickedness, but the wicked sinners. Hell is not a place, understand this, where sin is punished. It is a place where sinners are punished. One said very well, sin is not the only thing that's vile. People are vile. People produce sins. Sins don't produce people. As Christ said, evil comes from the heart. It doesn't come from outside and contaminate the innocent heart. When hell is executed in its fullness, it will be people who are the object of the infinite wrath of God. It's not just sin abstracted. Because understand this, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as abstracted sin. Sin is the acting of our wills and oftentimes the carriage of our bodies and desires against what God has commanded and against His infinite glory. And so those sins are the actions and desires of wicked people. The Bible is so clear in this. It's astounding that ever this would be challenged by people today. But think for a moment just in the way that sin is described. Romans chapter 1 from verse 22, you'll notice this very clear emphasis. It's the people who are wicked because the people are sinning. Romans chapter 1 from 22 and on. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools 
and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so on. Notice this. It's the people who are doing these things. It's their hearts which long for these things. You can see it as well in Romans chapter 3 and at verse 10, quoting from the Scriptures, Paul strings these things together. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and so on. Again and again, the Scriptures are clear. Sin is by man committed. It's not something foreign to man. It is something since the fall that is native to him. He is the sinner. When we understand this, and we say, why are we spending time on this? Because we take for granted how overwhelmingly full the long-suffering of God is. If we would see sin for what it is and see ourselves who have sinned for what we are, we should be astonished at the long-suffering of God toward us. So what we see here is it is, it is a glorious display of God's kindness that He should bear with such wicked ones as we are. And more than that, as we'll see, that He should even be willing to pardon their sins and receive them into fellowship with Him. So secondly, notice the occasions for long-suffering. There are many that we could identify, but we'll limit ourselves to three main categories. How is it that we see God display His long-suffering kindness? Well, we can say it in general. Firstly, the fact that sinners live is a display of His long-suffering kindness. Now, this is not all to the same secondary end. All is to the same primary end, God's glory. But He is long-suffering to some for a subordinate reason. For some, it's that He would be glorified in the display of His long-suffering and the hardening of their hearts that they should then be judged. For others, He's long-suffering to them that He would lead them to, to repentance, that they would be converted, and so on. But the fact that He does not show forth His wrath upon the first instance of sin is doubtlessly a display of His long-suffering. You can see this in Romans chapter 9, for instance. And there at verse 22, notice how Paul speaks of this He's talking of the sovereignty of God even over the vessels that were made into dishonor. So the reprobate. The reprobate that they live in this life and they have smiles on their faces and they have enjoyments in this world as Christ says in Matthew 
He says, God, your Father, causes rain to fall upon the righteous and upon the, the wicked, the fields of the righteous and of the wicked. Here, Paul notes in verse 22, Romans 9, what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? This is no little thing for us. We should understand this. It's astounding that He has chosen to be long-suffering to those whom He's chosen unto salvation. It is, in one sense, more astounding that those that He has said unto death, He will suffer for your sins, that He ever shows them any kindness at all. That is an overwhelming display of the immeasurable goodness of God. This is with reference then even to the reprobate that He is displaying His goodness, though He orders it to their ultimate undoing. Yet it is testifying of something in Him that is good. But the Scriptures are much fuller regarding the other categories. Namely this, that His long-suffering is displayed towards sinners who are chosen unto salvation. In other words, sinners who will be in time converted. We referenced this somewhat in passing last week when we read from Jonah and chapter 4. And if you look at that chapter, you remember Jonah the prophet and all that he was wrestling with as he saw his commission. And he despised his commission because he was called to go to uh, Babylon and to go there to Nineveh and to the capital of this wicked empire which had done unseemly things, even unspeakable things against God's people. And he knew from the outset, that God coming to him saying, you go and speak to them, that God was up to a gracious purpose. And notice what's said in Jonah chapter 4, when he says in verse 2, he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. What's Jonah saying but this? So soon as I received the commission to go to Nineveh, I knew you had a purpose to convert these wicked, these godless, these abhorrent enemies, both of you and of your people. And how does Jonah summarize it? He says, I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, notice the language, slow to anger. If you do even a little research to figure out what they in Nineveh did to humankind, you will realize that this was an abhorrent people. You can read testimonies of those who suffered in various concentration camps. You can read testimonies of men like Richard Wormbrand and those who suffered in uh, Soviet Union. And you will hear how they endure these great things. And then you'll read their account how some of these wicked men were converted. And whereas this was a difficulty for some who were being, as it were, challenged by that, it's a concrete display of God's long-suffering kindness even toward His elect in the fullness of their iniquity. Notice what Paul says of himself. In 1 Timothy and chapter 1, there at verse 16, 
What was Paul before he was converted? Paul is not one to mince words. He acknowledges that he was, of course, an enemy of Christ and of the church. And we have his testimony of himself in 1 Timothy 1. Notice verse 13 that he was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. And notice what's mentioned in verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And it's here where we start to understand something of the beauty of this truth. Because if we only look at the horror of what sin is, our sins, what we are as sinners, we will become overwhelmed. And rightly so. But Paul is setting himself forth in accordance to God's providence as a chosen example, a pattern as he says, in we could translate it even a prototype of, uh, for those who would hereafter believe on Christ to life everlasting. What's the point? Look how long-sufferingly kind God was to Saul and ultimately converted him This is an argument for the most vile of sinners to say, yet with God there is hope. So long as I have breath, I have cause, as it were, to cry out and to say, forgive me. Think of the king of Nineveh. He called for a fast. And he said, who knows, but that God may relent and repent Himself of this evil. And surely we see in that instance and in Saul of Tarsus, and in countless others, the fact that God is long-suffering and it ought to be the orientation of the convict and convinced sinner, sinner to say that I'm still alive is cause then for me to cry out to God and say, forgive me. I cannot answer for my sins. I cannot deal with my sins on my own. But You are a gracious God, a merciful God, one who forgives sin. And though I deserve death and damnation, though I deserve everlasting wrath, yet such is Your long-suffering kindness that I appeal to You now for mercy, for grace, for pardon. And like as Paul was received by God through Christ, so Paul sets himself forth as an example to others. Not for any good in himself, you understand. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Look how bad I was, and yet God saved me. Therefore, think about what that says about God. That's Paul's point. Well, we could emphasize this more if we had more time. But the point is, When God is to save a sinner, it is because He has chosen to be long-suffering. And we sometimes lose sight of this. And the Lord is merciful to bring back the thought of the sins of our youth. Sometimes Christians don't know what to do with this. They say, well, my sins are forgiven. Why should I ever think about them again? Well, several reasons, not least of which is the Bible said you should. The Bible puts in the Psalms this remembering of our sins. And so it's part of piety to meditate upon our sins of the past. Not in order for us to lose hope, but to remember and give glory to God for the wonder of the magnitude of His grace. Sometimes people say, well, you know, in heaven we'll never remember our sins. 
We say, well, then rip out the book of Revelation. Because in heaven, they sing, worthy is the Lamb of God, who did what? Who washed us from our sins by His blood. The difference will be, there will be no sorrow in heaven. There will be no shame in heaven. We can't have the same thoughts now that we'll have then because we're not yet glorified and sin still works within us. But there, in the presence of the glory of Christ and the fullness of His display of His love and the certainty of the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins, all of these things will mean the remembrance of sin will be an instantaneous cause of praise to Christ. But brethren, we're not there yet. So the remembrance of our sins right now is right to cause something of a conviction of our hearts. And yet, heaven is partially begun. And so when it is brought to remember to our remembrance, we're then to go to Christ again and say, Oh Christ, thank You that You didn't treat me as my sins deserve. Everyone here who's a believer should be able to look at the past of their lives and say without any hesitation, without any qualification, I deserve. I deserve. Not deserved. I deserve in myself hell. That's what I deserve. That's what I deserve for my past sins. That's what I deserve for my present sins. Because sin is an infinite evil against God. It is monstrously wicked. I deserve damnation. But Christ has paid for it all. The only reason that I have any peace of conscience is because Christ has satisfied the demand of God's law and has quenched the wrath of God for me. And the only reason, while yet unconverted, the wrath of God did not fall out upon me and drive me down to the very depths and the belly of hell is because God was long-sufferingly kind to me. Bearing with me. You can see it in the parable. You know, these um, tares grow up. You know, shall we rip them out? He says, no, let them grow lest we do what? Lest we uproot the weed as well. God was long-suffering because He wouldn't have those chosen unto salvation upended. We can say as well that another occasion for the display of His long-suffering kindness is the sins of His redeemed people. Touched on that a little bit. Perhaps we can shorten our time and make the same point by simply turning to 2 Samuel and chapter 11. David is a believer. He's a converted man. He's a redeemed man. The blood of Christ yet to be shed would be credited would have been credited to him at this time and yet as we so David still wrestled with sin and on various occasions it's recorded that he indeed fell into sin you'll notice just briefly second samuel 11 and verse 2 came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman 
was very beautiful to look upon. With that mere mention, you know the rest. He commits adultery with her. He then tries to cover his tracks. He tries to get Uriah to come and have relations with his own wife and so on. All of that fails. And when finally at the brink of these things it hits him, it's then that he says, well, I have to have Uriah killed. And so months are passing, you understand. For Bathsheba to come and say, lo, I'm with child, means that months have passed. And all of this takes place. Uriah gets killed by David's command. And the first time in this whole chapter that the Lord is mentioned is at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Notice, God's posture toward your sins and my sins is not some, oh, it's not a big deal. He's not a grandfather or a grandmother who when the grandchildren do something that they shouldn't have done, the grandparents say, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, come here, give me a hug. God is displeased with your sins. He's more displeased with your sins than you can account for because He cannot but be displeased with your sins. The difference is, He no longer has wrath toward your sins because His wrath has been fully satisfied by the death of His Son on your account. But that doesn't mean that He's not displeased with your sins. And this is where, again, the evangelical church of our day gets it wrong and they say, well, we're forgiven, so I've got nothing but God's good pleasure toward me. Well, we have God's good pleasure, but part of His good pleasure is a right displeasure toward our sins. And so what does He do? He orders things like conviction. He orders Nathan the prophet and providence to come and at His command to reprove David. And David doesn't then have a response to Nathan to say, well, Nathan, you know, you're making too big of something out of nothing. I'm a forgiven sinner. You know, stay back. And leave me alone. Don't bother me about conviction. I'm trusting in the coming mediator. I'm okay. David is cut through. So you find Psalm 51. And what is the solitary plea of David throughout that psalm? It's God's mercy. He's realizing that God has been long-suffering to him. And this, of course, would have been against the backdrop of all of the generous mercies God had already poured out to David in the temporal things and the kingdom and all of these other things that God had given to David. And yet David, in a sin against God, took Bathsheba and had Uriah killed and would have gone on without any trembling of conscience had not God disclosed to David his displeasure with him. And the church today says, don't bother me with conviction. Not realizing that the Lord's convicting of His people is a display both of His love and His long-suffering to us. That He would rather deal with us than allow us to go headstrong into our own demise. He deals with us and He suffers long with kindness toward us. How many times, think of this, would David have gone to participate in various sacrifices in this time? 
How many times would he have seen in the tabernacle, the temple's not yet built, would he have seen the priests offering up sacrifices? What is that? But God toward David, who was at this moment an adulterer and a murderer, God toward David saying, here's what you need. You need what this is pointing out. And how many times have we sat in a building like this with sin that we didn't even acknowledge and God directing us to Christ? It is a testimony of how immeasurably, long-sufferingly kind God is toward His people. Brethren, the word long-suffering is easy for us. The concept should be overwhelming. We think so little of our sins that displease God. Which, when we get a little glimpse of it, we then start to see, oh, there's something about God that far transcends what I imagined. What is it? It's what He's revealing of Himself here. He, he is good. He is Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering. Well, brethren, here then, as we've waded through some heavy things, the point is to highlight then this most weighty blessing to us. Because so soon as you and I start to discover how wicked and wretched our sins still are, though answered by the blood of Christ, it should then direct us to the question, how is it that God is so generously kind to me? The world would answer it because, well, my sin must not be that bad. The Bible answers it because God is so long-suffering toward you. That's the reason. It's not because you're better than others. It's not because you've got your act together. It's not because you're Reformed and others are Arminian. It's not because you're Protestant and others are Roman Catholic. It's because God is manifesting and magnifying how great is His long-suffering toward you. Because though it is right to be Protestant and Reformed and so on, the only reason that that's the case for you is because God in His goodness and mercy and long-suffering has borne with your many pushbacks. How many times in your journey would you have set aside the Word of God and its guidance and not have advanced in your knowledge of the truth? And why was it that God did not end your life at that moment? I'm not saying why is it that God didn't uh, uh, send you to hell, but rather, you as His son or daughter was resisting His Word. Why didn't He say, that's it, I'm not going to suffer you to walk in this world anymore. I'm taking you out of the world now and bringing you to glory. It's because in His infinite long-suffering, He chose to bear with your fault, to bear with your brazen self-confidence, and to say, yet will I endure, so that in this life, I will get glory to Myself in leading this one along in greater understanding of the truth. God has been immeasurably good in His long-suffering to you and to me. The only reason we have grown is because God did not end our lives when we resisted. We can say, yes, well, He multiplied instances of His Word to us. He brought up these pastors and this friend and this sermon and this book and these things. And all of that has to be realized as instances, yes, of its own sort of kindness, 
but in the context of His bearing with your much and many refusings of His kindness before that time. And so, brethren, here's the point. Here is a cause of ceaseless praise now. You have need to factor this in as best as you and I can. If you live 40 years, 50 years, 80 years, wherever you are in your life, mark it from the point of your conversion and realize that every year and decade, every day and second is an instance toward you of His long-suffering. How many times has it been if you've walked with the Lord for more than 10 years, you say along that course, you know, it's astonishing how God has borne with me in my ignorance and my refusals. And then we start to think, well, if God gives me 20 more years, what does that mean but that I'll be growing? Which means right now, right now, God is bearing with ignorance and sin in us. So if you live another 20 years, you know what you'll discover? That at this point in history of your life right now, God was exercising His merciful long-suffering to you. And what should that bring from you? Praise to God. God, the only reason that I receive any help, any encouragement, any guidance is because you're good. And you have been long-suffering to me. It's a cause for praise that we have such a God who is not just theoretically long-suffering, but is really long-suffering to us. Not just to people, but put your name in it. He is long-suffering to you. This then is to be a cause of praise. The other thing it's to be is a cause for repentance. This is what Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, knowing not that the long-suffering, the forbearance and long-suffering of God is meant to lead you to repentance. So soon as we discover how good God is, it's to be, as it were, a spiritual magnet that draws us out of our sin to Him. This we get a sense of in this life by men and women who are genuinely kind to us. We're not just talking about the normal you know, kindnesses and so on, but we do something rude and they're genuinely kind to us. And there's something in us that says, that person's kind. And I, I need to stop what I'm doing and start being as I should toward them. Well, all the more with God who is infinitely so toward us. So embedded in this is a warning. It is Satan's lie and our readiness to believe the lie that says, well, since God is long-suffering, I'll just sort of coast through. You know, God's going to be kind, so why should I be that diligent? Which is to say, in effect, Lord, because You're kind, I'm going to sin. Because You're kind, I'm going to carry on carelessly in my way, my speech, my action, my behavior. But instead, when we discover God is kind, that's to lead us with joy to worship Him, which necessarily is to lead us in a path then of more earnest obedience for Him. And once again, we see this truth. It is God's grace that precedes our holiness. It is God's goodness toward us that leads us then by His grace unto obedience. Well, brethren, 
if you stand convinced of sin of any sort, here is not a pillow for you to carry on in that sin, but rather a great encouragement to you to cry out to Him for forgiveness and renewal that He then who has been long-suffering would continue to show you grace to His glory and your good forever. Would you stand with me?